Last week, one of the things that we did talk about uh, was uh, Pascal's view on a couple of different things. And he really talked about the, the person who does believe in God has a responsibility to help those who do not understand the logic that, that it, 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 it's a logical decision to believe that God exists. There's reason and there's logic, and you can point these things out. But then he also said you couple that with painting the picture of beauty that the gospel is. So we don't, we're not just on logic and reason alone, but we're, we're helping people understand the beauty of the gospel because he says that most people who don't believe in religious, uh, in, in, in the Christian faith in particular, a lot of them are afraid that it's true. That's why they detest it so. And so in his argument with that, in both the logic and reasonable side, but then there's also the beauty of the truth of the, of the good news. We're not making anything up, but as Christ followers, sometimes we forget that it is good news. Like, it's a beautiful picture of rescue and redemption and the hard picture of the rebellious heart God still pursues. And then it was Pascal who had the wager. Are you familiar with Pascal's wager? It was the whole thing of, you know what, if you're a betting man and you're saying, I choose to believe that Christ is who he says he is, and you end up being right on that side, he says, then you have eternal blessings, eternal relationship, fellowship with God and fellowship with the saints. And if you're wrong, you've lost nothing because you've probably lived a life of compassion, loving people, serving, pouring yourself out, not living consumed about yourself. You've not wasted anything. But he says on the other side of that wager, if you're the betting man who says, I'm not going to believe that you basically have everything to lose. Now, I understand that it takes a lot more than a wager to make someone believe because I know people who just say, I can't believe. And to that, Pascal would say, well, fake it till you make it. Ultimately, go to the church, listen to the songs, listen to the sermons, pray, read your Bible, and God will work that all out. Now, I don't know if that's how it works. And I also know that it's not just logic that introduces people to Jesus. Jesus saves people, not logic and reason, not evidences. Jesus meets people, and the gospel is what saves someone. And so... This morning, you know, as, as Pascal argued that belief is not just logical, but it's a necessity for the human heart, we're going to look at those other questions that follow after that. Well, if God does exist, what could he be like? What, what does he demand? What, what about me? And what are the struggles that I walk with? And I want to make sure you understand it's for two reasons. Uh, the first reason being to strengthen believers. Knowing why you believe and what you believe, it, it, it creates and stirs a confidence, not a cockiness or an arrogance. But man, I'm telling you, the arguments the culture throws at you will shut you down instantly because you, in the back of your mind, are going, maybe they're right. And to be able to go back to the things, the foundation, and pull back some of the things that we may subtly be allowing to influence us, because here's the truth. The gospel does not advance in a culture of Christians that believe what may be true for you may not be true for what may be true for me may not be true for you. The gospel will go nowhere when the church takes on that belief. But when the church takes on the belief that Jesus is the rock, that's when we're compelled to love as he loved, to live as he lived, and to share Christ even when hard questions come our way. Truth is, for you and I, we will be tempted at every turn to reject the truth we already know. And we'll talk more about that. 
And the reason we, we, we as Christ followers would be tempted to reject the things we already know is because we think the lesser pleasures will give us what we need and what we want. But the more you're able to peel back the layers, getting to the foundation of why we believe what we believe, and to understand that God has not asked of us blind faith. I hope you know that. I hope that you don't perpetuate the idea that God's asked us for blind faith, because that's not what's described in the scripture. And I think that's one of the things we have to be able to explain to people, that you and I aren't making faith claims blindly. In fact, God has not given us that invitation. Firstly, because blind faith isn't what he describes in Scripture. And secondly, it's not God honoring to blindly trust him. Do you know that? It doesn't, it doesn't give glory to God to go, eh, maybe. Eh, okay, cool, whatever. No, God proved himself faithful all through the Old Testament. Jesus did the same in the New. And it is a trustworthy statement for me to say, I believe you, because he's shown himself faithful. So blind faith is not what is asked of us. And as Christ followers, I hope you know that and can explain that to someone else. But secondly, there are those of you in this room who have questions. And I really try and help people understand there are no dumb questions. And I know we make fun of that and we might poke fun at that, but there's no dumb question. There's no question that's too big for God. There's no question that's too small for Him. And so the the, the danger is when no one's asking any questions. Like, if everyone's just sitting there going, then we have problems. Questions are a cause to help people go, you know what? There's growth happening. They're actually addressing the things that are stirring in them, and they're not shoving them down like we do in the American culture. But they're asking questions. And in a place like this, journeying with people, I hope as a parent, you aren't upset that your children will come to you with tough questions. I hope that, as Jen said, you will dig with your children as they ask things that you may or may not have an answer for. I hope you get asked hard questions. Because to walk through life and to just go, I'm not going to deal with it, I can't even, bury my head in the sand isn't what we've been invited to. And ultimately, that it is not um, blind faith that God is asking of us, but calculated, reasonable evidences point to a trustworthy God. Now, for those of you that need that visual, for me, you know, let's say I win a contest and I get to play with the Golden State Warriors a whole game and they have to play me, all right? They have to. It was a contract, like, you know, publicity stunt and somehow I win and I get to play a full game with the Golden State Warriors, including the last seven seconds of the game where they're down by two. Now, it would be a ridiculous decision... For the Golden State Warriors to go, we're going to get the ball to Garris. It would be. Because they have Steph Curry on their team. All right? Now, granted, this illustration is going to be terrible because two nights ago he went 0 for 10 from the three-point line. I get that. But statistically, let's look at Steph Curry's stats. All right? The most, he's got two, look at that. Unbelievable in, the, in, in, in how he shoots. You know, 11 Time In two games, he hit 11 or more threes. Look at that. 64 games in a season, he hit six three-pointers. All right? Next, go to the next step. All right? NBA rankings. Can you see that yet? Yeah, there you go. Steph Curry. 402 three-pointers in the 2015-2016 season. Do you think they're going to say, let's get the ball to Garris? 
I would hope someone would say, yeah, I trust you. No, you don't. You don't trust me because evidence points to you get the ball to Steph Curry. Everything that they know and they've seen and they've lived points to we know the ball's going to Steph. You see, for me to blindly trust God, it doesn't make God trustworthy. It actually makes me a fool. For you to blindly trust somebody with $100,000 because they tell you they're good with money, it doesn't make that person trustworthy. It makes you a fool. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the scripture is that it allows for Christ's followers to dig in and to look at the evidences that are before them. In the Old Testament, when God provided rescue from the nation of Israel, he didn't say, hey, if you believe me, I'll rescue you. He says, I'm coming to rescue you. And there are 19 chapters in Exodus that, that are all about the rescue of God. And then you get to Exodus 20 that suggests, now, look at me, believe me. I have done all of these things. I have performed miracles, and you've seen them. I was a, a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, and I brought you through the waters, and now I've done all of these things. I've provided food from heaven for you. Now tell your children about this. And what we see is generations and generations forgetting to tell their children about what God had already done. And in the New Testament, it's no different the New Testament, Jesus didn't ask for blind faith either. He walked and spoke and performed miracles, continuing to back up that he alone forgave sins. Now, before I go any further with this, um, it is for your benefit that I love martial arts movies. Uh, and I believe that with everything in me. And this has become a favorite clip of mine because I believe that it describes the human condition better than any martial arts clip ever will, you know, uh, maybe even any movie clip, because it deals with how we deal, why we can't even most of the time. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty obscure clip, but I've shown it before, but I think you'll understand why it describes you and I to a T. <laughs> お前たちに剣術の稽古をつける。心して こう入って。お前ここに仕込め。よし。そして。おめえだよ。それからこうだ。よし。これでいくぞ。ほっ。ほっ。こうだ。ほっ。よ。ほっ。やれやできんじゃねえか。いいか、今度早くするぞ。
For safety, let's plan the moves. That's us. Like, I only want to be confronted with things that I'm comfortable with dealing with. I'm only wanting to deal with things that I can personally deal with. And so when a, when a samurai master tells you, only hit me here, here, or here, you're going to want to go, I need to find a new master. Because if there's the calculated, I can only deal with this, this, or this, and I'm out then we have a problem. And so I know there may be some of you who are going, you know what, I don't know if I necessarily want to deal with these things. This isn't in my wheelhouse. I'm not a conversationalist. Well, C.S. Lewis says that the question for the Christ follower is not whether or not we will defend the faith. The question is, will we defend the faith well? And for as Christ followers, for you and I, we are all invited to be people who defend the faith defending the gospel. And our lives often point to those things better than even the words that we could speak. And so the, 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 the invitation for this series is that you would be willing to go, this isn't a calculated move. This may be a move that I'm not comfortable with dealing with. And nine times out of ten, when I push back on somebody's suggestion about how they live or why they live the way they do, and they get defensive, it's because they've never thought about it. When we get taken aback because we haven't considered why we live the way we do or why we believe what we believe, chances are you feel that I'm backed into a corner, so I have to spring, and I get aggressive. And so it should not shock you that people get upset because they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to acknowledge, man, I've never really even thought about the foundation that I have built my life on. If you get upset when somebody questions your faith, Maybe there's a chance that you've never wrestled with some of these things, and it's okay to wrestle. So the conversation squasher, we'd be, I call them conversation squashers because they freeze us up and they kind of end all conversation, is that statement that the culture makes, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just believe it. Be sincere. And this thought process is very alive in our society, and even more, Christ followers seem to be taken aback. When someone says that, we go, well, I don't want to question somebody's sincerity. I don't want to question what they genuinely believe. And you can see it in statements like, well, aren't all religions the same? Or that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And I want to make it really clear that this is not an attack on someone's sincerity or that they don't genuinely believe what they genuinely believe. Because chances are, they do. (laughs) What I'm asking for us this morning to look at is to actually go beneath that because Christ followers have never been asked to have this sincerity or genuine faith or great faith. It's not God saying you have to do all of these things and and your faith must be this huge amount. It's actually all through scripture what we're considered is the object of our faith. What is it that you are putting your faith in is the greater question than how much faith do you have? You see, this is so anti our culture because as Christians, I think even we foolishly can put faith in faith. We can foolishly go, you know what, as long as I have enough faith, enough faith for what? That I'm going to get what I'm going to get or I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. We just put faith in faith and we don't ever get to that bottom layer that suggests where are you putting your faith? 
What is the object of your faith, and can it hold up? Can it hold you up? The more important question is what is the object of your faith? And that is what God points us to all through the Old and the New Testament. Just after the resurrection of Jesus, he appears to a few of the women that were with his group and then again to some of the disciples. And it just happens that Thomas wasn't with them the first time. And we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. Uh, Part of me wonders, because of his personality, did he go, did I just waste three years of my life? I need some time. I need some space because I can't even right now. Like, I just saw this dude who I thought was the one die at the hand of sinners. Was he on the run? Was he like, I'm not going to be around? I'm not going to hang out? We don't, we don't necessarily know. But we do know the next time that John records the encounter this way. John chapter 20, starting verse 24. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I don't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, if you don't know much about Thomas, most of us don't. There's not a lot recorded in the scripture about Thomas. The first time we hear from Thomas is right after Jesus' good friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus said, he was told, hey, Lazarus is sick, you need to come. And Jesus stayed a couple extra days ministering. And then they get news, hey, Lazarus has died. And this is the response Jesus gives And then Lazarus speaks up in John chapter 11. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, talking about Lazarus, he will soon get better. Verse 13, they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> like, the first time I read that, I laughed out loud. Because I was like, was he so like, oh, we're dead. We're just going to die. Hey, hey well, let's just go do this now. And I think some of us follow Jesus that way too. We might as well go with Jesus and die too. And we say it like that and we mean it like that. Or maybe Thomas had picked up on some of the things Jesus had spoken about. Remember, Jesus did tell the disciples multiple times, hey, you know what? I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. So maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe Thomas was like, okay, maybe this is it. You know, maybe this is us going to die for our faith. So let's go get it, guys. Maybe, I don't know. But we see him asking and saying statements that would would point to maybe he believed that Jesus is who he said he is, and he's willing to go at this point. The next time Thomas speaks up is after Jesus' famous words of don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus goes on this long run explaining that, that he's leaving, that he's going to die, that some of, someone in their camp is going to betray them, uh, that, that Peter is going to deny him, that Satan was working against them, and that the, all the disciples are eventually going to run and hide. And I imagine that Jesus starts to see the countenance of the disciples' faces just going, like, what? 
And I th- I'm pretty sure he could read the room. And so he's like, ah, these guys need a win. And so in John chapter 14, he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come to get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And I'm sure Thomas was like, guys, am I right? Am I right or am I alone here? I'm alone here on this. You're going to leave me hanging here? Okay, so I'm the only one who asked the question. There are times that I wonder if the disciples really were struggling with the same thing, but only Thomas spoke up. And I love that about Thomas, that he would say, um, question, where are you going? Like, I got no clue. <laughs> I'm not, I know I'm not alone, because me and, me and John were talking about this earlier, and he doesn't know either. So, come on, man, speak up. You know, it's amazing to me that he asks these questions And I believe that for some of us, we think, well, if I'm asking questions, I don't believe things, or I don't know things, or I'm going to be, look at it as dumb, or somebody's, no. Asking questions is a sign of growth. And I think if we would picture it that way and understand that we are inquisitive people, and we ask questions, and we wrestle with things, and don't shove that down, there are opportunities to grow. Because it's directly after Thomas says, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, you know me, so you know the way. Jesus didn't come to point a way to God. He actually came to be the way. And so for Jesus to calm Thomas and go, and go you know me, so you know the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. Because you know me, you know the way. Oh, right, right, right. Still don't get all of that, but whatever. That's cool. (laughs) Probably Thomas's response. The only one willing to speak up. But it is at that question that Jesus reveals that he is the way. Jesus didn't come to be a pointer to go that way to get to God. He said, come through me. And it makes me sad that Thomas is known as doubting Thomas by so many Christians It makes me sad that I've heard people say, don't be like Thomas. It makes me sad that Thomas seems to be more of the bad guy because he was seeking evidences to support what I think his heart was longing to believe. I think his heart was longing to believe that something was true, but his eyes had just seen the one that he had been following for three years crucified. So the evidences that I've gathered in this are that Jesus is dead. How are we talking about following him still? And I love that if you fast forward, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples are all hiding behind closed doors. And in verse 25, he makes the very honest statement. They told him, we've seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. I've often wondered why Thomas wasn't with the disciples the first time. You know, had Thomas thought that I'm going to die now. Like they just killed Jesus. What's to stop them from coming after me and killing me? And am I really willing to die for something that could be a lie? 
Am I really willing to put my neck out there? Or if Jesus was just this trickster and for three years I watched him do these tricks and now he's dead and he said he could forgive sins and he said he could do all of these things, am I going to give my life to something like this? I don't know. Maybe that's where he was wondering. Maybe he needed a retreat time to just put everything down on the paper. I don't know why Thomas wasn't there. But I do know the questions I would probably be asking. And it would, it would be... Is this really worth my life? Because everything I see is that Jesus died. And now I have people telling me that he's alive. And let's not forget that the disciples were also hiding behind locked doors. They might have been wrestling with, guys, who do we say that he is? Is this true? What are we believing right now? Is what we have allowed to direct our lives for so many years actually true? And it's not a bad thing to do. You know, sometimes when you come to that crisis of faith, it can cause you to dive deeper in to the truth that we stand on. But when you come to that crisis of faith, it can also reveal that you are standing on very thin ice. That whatever you've given your life to may actually not be able to hold you up. C.S. Lewis gives the example of thick ice over thin ice. And the idea is if you were to go, go to a, 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 a pond in Florida during the winter months and you see a very thin layer of ice standing over that water, and even though you have great faith that that thin ice is going to hold you up, I have the greatest faith in the world. I'm so strong in faith that this ice is going to hold me up. When you step on that thin ice, you are going through the water, into the water. That's a given But then he says, take very small faith to Minnesota at a lake during wintertime. And the feet of ice that literally stands on that water. And you may be, I have have so little faith that this ice is going to hold me up. I have so little faith. Oh, woe is me. I have so little faith that this ice is going to hold me up. And when you step on that ice, you ain't going nowhere. The object of your faith has always been more important than the amount of faith you have. God is trustworthy. Um, Christians have not been asked to trust thin ice with great faith. We've actually been told that even the mustard-sized seed of faith placed in the right place is what matters most. Christ's followers put their faith in God, not simply because he asks us to, but because he's proven himself trustworthy. Um, Mary Worthy, a brilliant 21st century thinker that I am personal friends with, um, she often, in talking with, our ch- talking with our teenagers, she uses this illustration, and I know for many of you, if you've sat with Mary, you've probably heard this illustration, but it is the fact faith feels train, and I call it the feels train, because feels is how we say it now. Um, and I will be selling prints of this artwork uh, later, at a later date. Um, that's why I signed it, because it's important. Um, but in life, this is how things work. You have your facts that drive the train, because we are people, whether or not we like to admit it, we respond to evidences. What we see is true, we hold on to. And we go, there's evidence that this is true, and so this is how I'm going to live my life. And then you have the faith that is built on those facts. And then you have feelings taking up the, the caboose, all right? This is the, the way the train works. But because we live in a culture that likes to shift things around, this is actually how the train really looks. You have the feels driving. And feels driving is not a good idea. 
<laughs> Do your feelings stay the same all the time? You're all like, I want to say no. I really do, but no, they don't. Your feelings are out of control. They go left, they go right, they go up, they go down. And this is who you put in the driving seat. This is what we do. Our feels become the most important factor of the day. And then we put the facts somewhere way in the back. We don't really even care about the facts. We would rather just go with what we're feeling. That's where we come up with the dumb phrases of follow your heart. No, do not follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is above all things deceitful and wicked. Put him in charge. No. We are people who respond to evidence, whether or not we want to admit it. And so the problem that we have in the church, in our view of who God is and what he can do, we, we like, well, my feelings say otherwise. Who cares? My feelings say otherwise. Your feelings are going to say otherwise tomorrow. They're going to say something different the next day and the next day and the next day. Human beings, whether or not we want to admit it, we need something solid. We need truth. And as much as we want to say that truth doesn't exist, we weren't meant to live on shifting sand. God does not encourage people to live without evidences. He does not ask us to blindly believe. If you look in creation, creation announces God exists. The psalmist said that very clearly. The heavens are declaring. When you go stand in front of the Grand Canyon, before the ocean, or look at stars in the sky, or look at views over at the Blue Ridge Parkway, you do not feel gigantic. You feel small. There's a reason for that. That because God has revealed his existence through creation, he has revealed evidences that he is God based on what we can see. Eternity is written on our hearts. There is a moral code that you and I may or may not know that around the world there, there seems to be this like mind on some core things. He's written it on our hearts. So if there is a universal law, could there be a universal law giver? Often in scripture, God says to be still and know that he is God. He doesn't say, hey, stay busy so you forget about all the core questions you need to ask. He says, be still. Oftentimes, we don't want to be still because we don't want to deal with the core questions. That's why we love distractions. But God said, be still and know that I am God. He goes on, come now, let us reason together. Paul often, when he went into places, would reason with those that he walked with. Jesus said, you will know the truth. You will not guess the truth. You will not create the truth. He said, you will know the truth. And it was Jesus who actually said, you count the cost. In John chapter 14, verse 27, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. Then he goes on to describe a builder who starts to build a house and doesn't have enough money to finish the project. What happens? He gets laughed at. Then he talks about a king who's considering going to war against 20,000 men, even though he only has 10,000 men, and he seeks out counsel and tries to figure out, is this a good idea? If it's not a good idea, should I make peace with these guys before they come? Or, or, or should I actually, do you think we can win? Jesus said to consider the cost. In Hebrews chapter 3, And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those who called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus. And Paul, in Romans chapter 1, 
to the Romans, he said this, and I believe it probably gets more to the core than any of the stuff we've already talked about. He says, this good news about Jesus tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. It isn't just our lack of physical evidence. It's our sin that pushes down what we know to be true. We don't want it to be true. We want our ways. We want to call the shots. And in doing so, we trade the truth for a lie. We don't want to worship. We don't want to be thankful. We want to pursue ourselves. You know, I am not so foolish to believe that it's just lack of evidence that keeps us from following him. It is our sinful desires. It is the sin that we love so much. Jesus, when he showed up as light, didn't say people were looking for the light. He actually said people loved the darkness. Our hearts are more wicked than we would think. But the gospel says we are more loved than we could ever know. When it came to Thomas and his need for Jesus to show up, how did Jesus meet him? With a ruler to smack him? Did he show up with a posse of angels who were like, Hey, Thomas, there's only one way out of this disciple group. It's a beatdown. I'm going to take you out back, so let's get this started. There's a jumping process that's got to happen, and we're going to jump you out. No, no. That's not how he met Thomas. Let's just read it again. Verse 26. Peace be with you. Jesus met Thomas with, let me, let me steal your heart, because I'm him. Then he continues, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's you. That's me. That's you. And that's me. As we close this morning and spend some moments just declaring this faith that we, we believe, 
Jesus appeared to the frightened, guilt-ridden disciples. And this is a picture of what Sunday mornings look like for us, too. You and I come in here rattled and shaken, and Jesus says, do not fear. He's the one who empowers us and sends us back out into a world that's going to question you, question what you believe, question your thoughts, question everything you know to be true. And what we are going to look at is Jesus saying, peace be with you. Know that the object of your faith is solid and is going nowhere. In a world that is shifting sand, there is a foundation, and it is Christ Jesus. If Jesus was willing to allow a spear to pierce his side, my guess is Jesus is okay with a hand touching that same side. My guess is if Jesus is allowing nails to be driven through his hands and his feet, that a hand asking to touch those holes is not going to bring back flashbacks of suffering, but is actually going to cause him joy. That a hand would say, can I just touch that scar on your hand? Jesus didn't come to Thomas with words or arguments that pointed to why Thomas could believe. He met Thomas with himself. At Jesus' appearing, Thomas moved from a place of living by sight to a place of living by faith. And that was not to take a step down in life. No, Thomas knew that if this is true, then my faith is placed in you and my life is going to be lived like that. Thomas is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, listed with the disciples, and then we don't see him again. Church tradition suggests that around 70 AD, he was martyred. For his faith. One of the greatest evidences that Jesus is who he says he is is that men, like you and I, fearful and afraid, normal human beings, change the world. And you don't do that when you're convinced Jesus is dead. You do that when you know he's alive. Thomas utters the five greatest words that could ever come across human lips, and that is, my Lord and my God. Jesus had met Thomas with what he needed to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so for Thomas, maybe the most important question isn't, do you genuinely believe what you believe? What if the more important question was, is what you genuinely believe trustworthy? Maybe for Thomas, the, the question wasn't, how much faith do you have? The question is, where have you placed your faith? And so this morning, my prayer is that this series will be a strengthening to you and I as Christ followers, that our lives are not built on blind faith. They are built on faith because God says without faith, it's impossible to please him. But that faith, saving faith, mustard-sized seed placed in the right place, and the right object accomplishes far more than the greatest of faith placed in thin ice. For those of you this morning, I don't want you to believe that as Christ followers, we let intellect and reason fly out the door. But what we do find, that we do come to an end of us. We do. There's an end to us calling the shots, and I believe for most, that's where we struggle the most. But Jesus is saying, Go ahead, 
Put your hand there. Go ahead, touch the side. Touch it. And I hope that you'll journey those questions. I hope you'll pull the layers back and you'll be willing to let Christ meet you there. Father, thank you for loving us. And I ask that as we wrestle with the idea of not even being able to and putting our heads in the sand and not wanting to think about those things that, Jesus, you came to rescue us from, I pray that we would. I pray that we'd be a people who would honestly allow you to meet us in our doubts and in our fears and in our questions, that we would also know that our sin really doesn't want it to be true so we can still call the shots. Jesus, thank you for dealing with that sin. Thank you for taking it on the cross. Thank you for loving me in the midst of my running. Thank you that the good news really is good news. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things this morning. Amen.